13. Angelish Classics, etc. Church's Life of Bacon. In English Men of Letters Series, Nichols Bacon's Life and Philosophy, Francis Bacon. Translated from the German of K. Fisher Excellent, but Rare, Macaulay's Essay on Bacon. Minor Prose Writers, Sydney's Arcadia. Edited by Summers, Defense of Poesy. Edited by Cook. In Athenaeum Press Series, Arbor's Reprints, etc. Selections from Sydney's Prose and Poetry in the Elizabethan Library, Simons's Life of Sydney. In English Men of Letters, Bourne's Life of Sydney. In Heroes of the Nations, Lamb's Essay on Sydney Sonnets. In Essays of Elia, Raleigh's Works. Published by the Oxford Press, Selections by Grossart. In Elizabethan Library, Raleigh's Last Fight of the Revenge. In Arbor's Reprints, Life of Raleigh. By Edwards and by Goss. Richard Hooker's Works. Edited by Keeble. Oxford Press, Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity. In Every Man's Library. And in Morley's Universal Library, Life. In Walton's Lives. In Morley's Universal Library, Doughton's Essay. In Puritan and Anglican. Lily's Euphus. In Arbor's Reprints, and Dimidon. Edited by Baker, Kempasp. In Manley's Pre-Shakespeare and Drama. North's Plutarch's Lives. Edited by Wyndham. In Tudor Library, School Edition. By Ginn and Company. Hacklet's Voyages. In Every Man's Library, Jones's Introduction to Hacklet's Diverse Voyages, Payne's Voyages of Elizabethan Seamen, Froude's Essay. In Short Studies on Great Subjects. Suggestive Questions. 1. What historical conditions help to account for the great literature of the Elizabethan Age? What are the general characteristics of Elizabethan literature? What type of literature prevailed? And why? What work seems to you to express most perfectly the Elizabethan spirit? 2. Tell briefly the story of Spencer's life. What is the story or argument of the fairy queen? What is meant by the Spencerian stanza? Read and comment upon Spencer's epithalamion. Why does the shepherd's calendar mark a literary epoch? What are the main qualities of Spencer's poetry? Can you quote or refer to any passages which illustrate these qualities? Why is he called the poet's poet? 3. For what is Sackville noted? What is the most significant thing about his Gorbotic? Name other minor poets and tell what they wrote. 4. Give an outline of the origin and rise of the drama in England. What is meant by miracle and mystery plays? What purposes did they serve among the common people? How did they help the drama? What is meant by cycles of miracle plays? How did the moralities differ from the miracles? What was the chief purpose of the interludes? What type of drama did they develop? Read a typical play, like Noah's Flood, or Every Man, and write a brief analysis of it. 5. What were our first plays in the modern sense? What influence did the classics exert on the English drama? What is meant by the dramatic unities? In what important respect did the English differ from the classic drama? 6. Name some of Shakespeare's predecessors in the drama. What types of drama did they develop? Name some plays of each type. Are any of these plays still presented on the stage? 7. What are Marlowe's chief plays? What is the central motive in each? Why are they called one-man plays? What is meant by Marlowe's mighty line? What is the story of Faustus? Compare Faustus and Goethe's Faust. Having in mind the story, the dramatic interest, and the literary value of each play. 8. Tell briefly the story of Shakespeare's life. What fact in his life most impressed you? How does Shakespeare sum up the work of all his predecessors? What are the four periods of his work? And the chief plays of each? Where did he find his plots? 
What are his romantic plays, his chronicle or historical plays? What is the difference between a tragedy and a comedy? Name some of Shakespeare's best tragedies, comedies, and historical plays. Which play of Shakespeare seems to you to give the best picture of human life? Why is he called the myriad-minded Shakespeare? For what reasons is he considered the greatest of writers? Can you explain why Shakespeare's plays are still acted, while other plays of his age are rarely seen? If you have seen any of Shakespeare's plays on the stage, how do they compare in interest with a modern play? 9. What are Ben Jonson's chief plays? In what important respects did they differ from those of Shakespeare? Tell the story of The Alchemist or The Silent Woman. Name other contemporaries and successors of Shakespeare. Give some reasons for the preeminence of the Elizabethan drama. What causes led to its decline? 10. Tell briefly the story of Bacon's life. What is his chief literary work? His chief educational work? Why is he called a pioneer of modern science? Can you explain what is meant by the inductive method of learning? What subjects are considered in Bacon's essays? What is the central idea of the essay you like best? What are the literary qualities of these essays? Do they appeal to the intellect or the emotions? What is meant by the word, essay? And how does Bacon illustrate the definition? Make a comparison between Bacon's essays and those of some more recent writer, such as Addison, Lamb, Carlyle, Emerson, or Stevenson, having in mind the subjects, style, and interest of both essayists. 11. Who are the minor prose writers of the Elizabethan age? What did they write? Comment upon any work of theirs which you have read. What is the literary value of North's Plutarch? What is the chief defect in Elizabethan prose as a whole? What is meant by euphuism? Explain why Elizabethan poetry is superior to the prose. Chronology last half of the 16th and first half of the 17th centuries history literature 1558. Elizabeth. 1603-1559. John Knox in Edinburgh 1562. Gammer Gurdon's Needle. Gorbovic 1564. Birth of Shakespeare 1571. Rise of English Puritans 1576. First Theatre 1577. Drake's Voyage Around the 1579. Spencer's Shepherd's Calendar. World Lily's Euphues. North's Plutarch. 1587. Shakespeare in London. Marlowe's Tamburlaine 1588. Defeat of the Armada 1590. Spencer's Fairy Queen. Sydney's Arcadia 1590-1595. Shakespeare's Early Plays 1597-1625. Bacon's Essays 1598-1614. Chapman's Homer 1598, Ben Jonson's Every Man in His Humor 1600-1607, Shakespeare's Tragedies 1603, James I 1625-1604, Divine Right of Kings 1605, Bacon's Advancement of Learning Proclaimed 1607, Settlement at Jamestown, 1608, Birth of Milton Virginia 1611, Translation King James Version of Bible 1614, Raleigh's History 1616, Death of Shakespeare 1620, Pilgrim Fathers at 1620-1642, Shakespeare's Successors, Plymouth End of Drama 1620, Bacon's Novum Organum 1622, First Regular Newspaper, The Weekly News 1625, Charles I 1626, Death of Bacon Chapter VII The Puritan Age 1620-1660 I Historical Summary The Puritan Movement in its broadest sense the Puritan movement may be regarded as a second and greater renaissance, 
a rebirth of the moral nature of man following the intellectual awakening of Europe in the 15th and 16th centuries, in Italy, whose influence had been uppermost in Elizabethan literature, the Renaissance had been essentially pagan and sensuous, it had hardly touched the moral nature of man, and it brought little relief from the despotism of rulers, one can hardly read the horrible records of the Medici or the Borgias, or the political observations of Machiavelli, without marveling at the moral and political degradation of a cultured nation, in the North, especially among the German and English peoples, the Renaissance was accompanied by a moral awakening, and it is precisely that awakening in England, that greatest moral and political reform which ever swept over a nation in the short space of half a century, which is meant by the Puritan movement. We shall understand it better if we remember that it had two chief objects, the first was personal righteousness, the second was civil and religious liberty. In other words, it aimed to make men honest and to make them free. Such a movement should be cleared of all the misconceptions which have clung to it since the Restoration, when the very name of Puritan was made ridiculous by the jeers of the gay courtiers of Charles I. Though the spirit of the movement was profoundly religious, the Puritans were not a religious sect, neither was the Puritan a narrow-minded and gloomy dogmatist, as he is still pictured even in the histories. Pym and Hampton and Eliot and Milton were Puritans, and in the long struggle for human liberty there are few names more honored by freemen everywhere. Cromwell and Thomas Hooker were Puritans, yet Cromwell stood like a rock for religious tolerance, and Thomas Hooker, in Connecticut, gave to the world the first written constitution, in which freemen, before electing their officers, laid down the strict limits of the offices to which they were elected, that is a Puritan document, and it marks one of the greatest achievements in the history of government. From a religious viewpoint Puritanism included all shades of belief. The name was first given to those who advocated certain changes in the form of worship of the Reformed English Church under Elizabeth, but as the ideal of liberty rose in men's minds, and opposed to it were the king and his evil counselors and the band of intolerant churchmen of whom law is the great example. Then Puritanism became a great national movement. It included English churchmen as well as extreme separatists, Calvinists, Covenanters, Catholic noblemen, all bound together in resistance to despotism in church and state, and with a passion for liberty and righteousness such as the world has never since seen. Naturally such a movement had its extremes and excesses, and it is from a few zealots and fanatics that most of our misconceptions about the Puritans arise. Life was stern in those days, too stern perhaps, and the intensity of the struggle against despotism made men narrow and hard. In the triumph of Puritanism under Cromwell severe laws were passed, many simple pleasures were forbidden, and an austere standard of living was forced upon an unwilling people. So the criticism is made that the wild outbreak of immorality which followed the restoration of Charles was partly due to the unnatural restrictions of the Puritan era. The criticism is just, but we must not forget the whole spirit of the movement. That the Puritan prohibited maypole dancing and horse racing is of small consequence beside the fact that he fought for liberty and justice. That he overthrew despotism and made a man's life and property safe from the tyranny of rulers. A great river is not judged by the foam on its surface, and certain austere laws and doctrines which we have ridiculed are but froth on the surface of the mighty Puritan current that has flowed steadily, like a river of life, through English and American history since the age of Elizabeth. Changing ideals. The political upheaval of the period is summed up in the terrible struggle between the king and parliament, 
which resulted in the death of Charles at the block and the establishment of the Commonwealth under Cromwell. For centuries the English people had been wonderfully loyal to their sovereigns, but deeper than their loyalty to kings was the old Saxon love for personal liberty. At times, as in the days of Alfred and Elizabeth, the two ideals went hand in hand, but more often they were in open strife, and a final struggle for supremacy was inevitable. The crisis came when James I who had received the right of royalty from an act of parliament, began, by the assumption of divine right, to ignore the parliament which had created him, of the civil war which followed in the reign of Charles I and of the triumph of English freedom. It is unnecessary to write here. The blasphemy of a man's divine right to rule his fellow men was ended. Modern England began with the charge of Cromwell's brigade of Puritans at Naseby. Religiously the age was one of even greater ferment than that which marked the beginning of the Reformation. A great ideal, the ideal of a national church, was pounding to pieces, like a ship in the breakers, and in the confusion of such an hour the action of the various sects was like that of frantic passengers, each striving to save his possessions from the wreck. The Catholic Church, as its name implies, has always held true to the ideal of a united church, a church which, like the great Roman government of the early centuries, can bring the splendor and authority of Rome to bear upon the humblest village church to the farthest ends of the earth. For a time that mighty ideal dazzled the German and English reformers, but the possibility of a united Protestant church perished with Elizabeth. Then, instead of the worldwide church which was the ideal of Catholicism, came the ideal of a purely national Protestantism. This was the ideal of Laud and the reactionary bishops no less than of the scholarly Richard Hooker, of the rugged Scotch Covenanters, and of the Puritans of Massachusetts Bay. It is intensely interesting to note that Charles called Irish rebels and Scotch Highlanders to his aid by promising to restore their national religions, and that the English Puritans, turning to Scotland for help, entered into the Solemn Covenant of 1643, establishing a national Presbyterianism whose object was, to bring the churches of God in the three kingdoms to uniformity in religion and government, to preserve the rights of parliament and the liberties of the kingdom, that we and our posterity may as brethren live in faith and love, and the Lord may delight to live in the midst of us. In this famous covenant we see the national, the ecclesiastical, and the personal dream of Puritanism, side by side, in all their grandeur and simplicity, years past, years of bitter struggle and heartache before the impossibility of uniting the various Protestant sects was generally recognized. The ideal of a national church died hard, and to its death is due all the religious unrest of the period. Only as we remember the national ideal, and the struggle which it caused, can we understand the amazing life and work of Bunyan, or appreciate the heroic spirit of the American colonists who left home for a wilderness in order to give the new ideal of a free church in a free state its practical demonstration literary characteristics. In literature also the Puritan age was one of confusion, due to the breaking up of old ideals, medieval standards of chivalry, the impossible loves and romances of which Spencer furnished the types, perished no less surely than the ideal of a national church, and in the absence of any fixed standard of literary criticism there was nothing to prevent the exaggeration of the metaphysical poets, who are the literary parallels to religious sects like the Anabaptists. Poetry took new and startling forms in Dunn and Herbert, and prose became as somber as Burton's anatomy of melancholy. The spiritual gloom which sooner or later fastens upon all the writers of this age, and which is unjustly attributed to Puritan influence, 
is due to the breaking up of accepted standards in government and religion. No people, from the Greeks to those of our own day, have suffered the loss of old ideals without causing its writers to cry, Ichabod, the glory has departed. That is the unconscious tendency of literary men in all times, who look backward for their golden age, and it need not concern the student of literature, who, even in the breakup of cherished institutions, looks for some foregleams of a better light which is to break upon the world. This so-called gloomy age produced some minor poems of exquisite workmanship, and one great master of verse whose work would glorify any age or people, John Milton, in whom the indomitable Puritan spirit finds its noblest expression. There are three main characteristics in which Puritan literature differs from that of the preceding age. One Elizabethan literature, with all its diversity, had a marked unity in spirit, resulting from the patriotism of all classes and their devotion to a queen who, with all her faults, sought first the nation's welfare. Under the Stuarts all this was changed. The kings were the open enemies of the people, the country was divided by the struggle for political and religious liberty, and the literature was as divided in spirit as were the struggling parties. To Elizabethan literature is generally inspiring, it throbs with youth and hope and vitality. That which follows speaks of age and sadness, even its brightest hours are followed by gloom, and by the pessimism inseparable from the passing of old standards. Three Elizabethan literature is intensely romantic, the romance springs from the heart of youth, and believes all things, even the impossible. The great schoolman's credo, I believe because it is impossible, is a better expression of Elizabethan literature than of medieval theology. In the literature of the Puritan period one looks in vain for romantic ardor, even in the lyrics and love poems a critical, intellectual spirit takes its place, and whatever romance asserts itself is in form rather than in feeling. A fantastic and artificial adornment of speech rather than the natural utterance of the heart in which sentiment is so strong and true that poetry is its only expression. I, I. Literature of the Puritan period The Transition Poets When one attempts to classify the literature of the first half of the 17th century, from the death of Elizabeth 1603 to the Restoration 1660, he realizes the impossibility of grouping poets by any accurate standard. The classifications attempted here have small dependence upon dates or sovereigns, and are suggestive rather than accurate. Thus Shakespeare and Bacon wrote largely in the reign of James I but their work is Elizabethan in spirit, and Bunyan is no less a Puritan because he happened to write after the Restoration. The name metaphysical poets, given by Dr. Johnson, is somewhat suggestive but not descriptive of the followers of Dunn. The name Caroline or Cavalier Poets brings to mind the careless temper of the Royalists who followed King Charles with a devotion of which he was unworthy, and the name Spencerian Poets recalls the little band of dreamers who clung to Spencer's ideal, even while his romantic medieval castle was battered down by science at the one gate and Puritanism at the other. At the beginning of this bewildering confusion of ideals expressed in literature, we note a few writers who are generally known as Jacobean Poets but whom we have called the transition poets because, with the later dramatists, they show clearly the changing standards of the age. Samuel Daniel 1562-1619 Daniel, who is often classed with the first metaphysical poets, is interesting to us for two reasons, for his use of the artificial sonnet, and for his literary desertion of Spencer as a model for poets, his Delia, a cycle of sonnets modeled, perhaps, after Sidney's Astrophil and Stella, helped to fix the custom of celebrating love or friendship by a series of sonnets. 
to which some pastoral pseudonym was affixed, in his sonnets, many of which rank with Shakespeare's, and in his later poetry, especially the beautiful complaint of Rosamond and his civil wars. He aimed solely at grace of expression, and became influential in giving to English poetry a greater individuality and independence than it had ever known. In matter he set himself squarely against the medieval tendency, let others sing of kings and paladins in aged accents and in timely words, paint shadows in imaginary lines. This fling at Spencer and his followers marks the beginning of the modern and realistic school, which sees in life as it is enough poetic material, without the invention of allegories and impossible heroines. Daniel's poetry, which was forgotten soon after his death, has received probably more homage than it deserves in the praises of Wordsworth, Southey, Lamb, and Coleridge. The latter says, Red Daniel, the admirable Daniel, the style and language are just such as any pure and manly writer of the present day would use. It seems quite modern in comparison with the style of Shakespeare. The songwriters, in strong contrast with the above are two distinct groups. The songwriters and the Spenserian poets. The close of the reign of Elizabeth was marked by an outburst of English songs, as remarkable in its sudden development as the rise of the drama. Two causes contributed to this result, the increasing influence of French instead of Italian verse, and the rapid development of music as an art at the close of the 16th century. The two songwriters best worth studying are Thomas Campion 1567-1619 and Nicholas Breton 1545-1626. Like all the lyric poets of the age, they are a curious mixture of the Elizabethan and the Puritan standards. They sing of sacred and profane love with the same zest, and a careless love song is often found on the same page with a plea for divine grace. The and poets, of the Spenserian poets Giles Fletcher and Wither are best worth studying. Giles Fletcher 1588-1623 has at times a strong suggestion of Milton who was also a follower of Spencer in his early years in the noble simplicity and majesty of his lines. His best-known work. Christ's Victory and Triumph, 1610, was the greatest religious poem that had appeared in England since Piers Plowman, and is not an unworthy predecessor of Paradise Lost. The Life of George Wither, 1588-1667 covers the whole period of English history from Elizabeth to the Restoration, and the enormous volume of his work covers every phase of the literature of two great ages. His life was a varied one, now as a royalist leader against the Covenanters and again announcing his Puritan convictions, and suffering in prison for his faith. At his best Wither is a lyric poet of great originality, rising at times to positive genius, but the bulk of his poetry is intolerably dull. Students of this period find him interesting as an epitome of the whole age in which he lived, but the average reader is more inclined to note with interest that he published in 1623 hymns and songs of the church, the first hymn book that ever appeared in the English language. The Metaphysical Poets, this name which was given by Dr. Johnson in derision, because of the fantastic form of Dunn's poetry is often applied to all minor poets of the Puritan age. We use the term here in a narrower sense, excluding the followers of Daniel and that later group known as the Cavalier Poets. It includes Dunn, Herbert, Waller, Denham, Cowley, Vaughan, Davenant, Marvel, and Crashaw. The advanced student finds them all worthy of study not only for their occasional excellent poetry, but because of their influence on later literature. Thus Richard Crashaw 1613, 1649, the Catholic mystic, 
is interesting because his troubled life is singularly like Dunn's, and his poetry is at times like Herbert set on fire. Abraham Cowley 1618-1667, who blossomed young and who, at 25, was proclaimed the greatest poet in England, is now scarcely known even by name. But his Pindaric Codes set an example which influenced English poetry throughout the 18th century. Henry Vaughan 1622-1695 is worthy of study because he is in some respects the foreigner of Wordsworth, and Andrew Marvel 1621-1678, because of his loyal friendship with Milton, and because his poetry shows the conflict between the two schools of Spencer and Dunn. Edmund Waller 1606-1687 stands between the Puritan Age and the Restoration. He was the first to use consistently the closed couplet which dominated our poetry for the next century. By this, and especially by his influence over Dryden, the greatest figure of the Restoration, he occupies a larger place in our literature than a reading of his rather tiresome poetry would seem to warrant. Of all these poets, each of whom has his special claim, we can consider here only Dunn and Herbert, who in different ways are the types of revolt against earlier forms and standards of poetry. In feeling and imagery both are poets of a high order, but in style and expression they are the leaders of the fantastic school whose influence largely dominated poetry during the half-century of the Puritan period. John Dunn 1573-1631 Life The briefest outline of Dunn's life shows its intense human interest. He was born in London the son of a rich iron merchant, at the time when the merchants of England were creating a new and higher kind of princes. On his father's side he came from an old Welsh family, and on his mother's side from the Haywoods and Sir Thomas More's family. Both families were Catholic, and in his early life persecution was brought near, for his brother died in prison for harboring a proscribed priest, and his own education could not be continued in Oxford and Cambridge because of his religion. Such an experience generally sets a man's religious standards for life, but presently done, as he studied law at Lincoln's Inn, was investigating the philosophic grounds of all faith. Gradually he left the church in which he was born, renounced all denominations, and called himself simply Christian. Meanwhile he wrote poetry and shared his wealth with needy Catholic relatives. He joined the expedition of Essex for Cadiz in 1596, and for the Azores in 1597 and on sea and in camp found time to write poetry. Two of his best poems, The Storm and The Calm, belong to this period. Next he traveled in Europe for three years, but occupied himself with study and poetry. Returning home, he became secretary to Lord Edgerton, fell in love with the latter's young niece, and more, and married her, for which cause Dunn was cast into prison. Strangely enough his poetical work at this time is not a song of youthful romance. But, the progress of the soul, a study of transmigration, years of wandering and poverty followed, until Sir George Moore forgave the young lovers and made an allowance to his daughter, instead of enjoying his new comforts, Dunn grew more ascetic and intellectual in his tastes, he refused also the nattering author of entering the Church of England and of receiving a comfortable living, by his pseudo-martyr, he attracted the favor of James I who persuaded him to be ordained yet left him without any place or employment. When his wife died her allowance ceased, and Dunn was left with seven children in extreme poverty. Then he became a preacher, rose rapidly by sheer intellectual force and genius, and in four years was the greatest of English preachers and dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. 
There he carried some to heaven in holy raptures and led others to amend their lives, and as he leans over the pulpit with intense earnestness is likened by Isaac Walton to an angel leaning from a cloud, here is variety enough to epitomize his age, and yet in all his life, stronger than any impression of outward weal or woe, is the sense of mystery that surrounds Dunn. In all his work one finds a mystery, a hiding of some deep thing which the world would gladly know and share, and which is suggested in his haunting little poem. The undertaking, I have done one braver thing than all the worthies did, and yet a braver than stuff spring, which island to keep that hid. Dunn's poetry, Dunn's poetry is so uneven, at times so startling and fantastic, that few critics would care to recommend it to others, only if you will read his works and they must be left to their own browsing, to find what pleases them, like deer which, in the midst of plenty, take a bite here and there and wander on, tasting twenty varieties of food in an hour's feeding, one who reads much will probably be well done's lack of any consistent style or literary standard, for instance, Chaucer and Milton are as different as two poets could well be, yet the work of each is marked by a distinct and consistent style and it is the style as much as the matter which makes the tales or the paradise lost a work for all time, done through style and all literary standards to the wines, and precisely for this reason he is forgotten, though his great intellect and his genius had marked him as one of those who should do things worthy to be remembered, while the tendency of literature is to exalt style at the expense of thought, the world has many men and women who exalt feeling and thought above expression, and to these done is good reading. Browning is of the same school, and compels attention, while Dunn played havoc with Elizabethan style. He nevertheless influenced our literature in the way of boldness and originality, and the present tendency is to give him a larger place, nearer to the few great poets, than he has occupied since Ben Jonson declared that he was the first poet of the world in some things, but likely to perish for not being understood. For too much of his poetry we must apply his own satiric verses on another's crudities, infinite work, which doth so far extend that none can study it to any end. George Herbert 1593-1633, O day most calm, most bright, Sangio.